Hey folks, it's Jared. We have an episode for you here featuring Dr. Greg Andrews based on his book, Shanty Boats and Rouseabouts, The River Port of St. Louis, 1875 to 1930. Uh, we did have a few audio challenges as we record this, but our ace editor, Joshua Gruber, has done excellent work here to clean those up for you. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters, whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a Simsec local chapter near you. Find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Greg Andrews, and we're going to discuss his book, Shanty Boats and Roustabouts, The River Poor of St. Louis, 1875 to 1930. So, Greg, welcome. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, please? Thank you very much, Jared. First of all, thank you for inviting me to be a guest on your podcast here. I look forward to it. Um, I grew up in uh, south of uh, Mark Twain's boyhood home of Hamble, Missouri, about three miles in a little uh, river bottoms uh, village known as Monkey Run. Uh, and so that's where I spent, that's where I spent my boyhood, uh, in the shadow of a cement plant that my father worked at and many other men and, and women worked at that was created there in 1903. I grew up there and, uh, got my PhD from Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois in 1988. And, uh, I took a position at, uh, Texas State University. At that time, it was Southwest Texas State University, and I came here then, and uh, I retired here in 2009 after 21 years in the history department. And so uh, I've been enjoying my retirement, playing music, and writing other books, including Shandy Boats and Roustabouts. Right. Well, I somehow missed that uh, you had gone to NIU, so one go Huskies uh, to my pretty much entire <laughs> My entire family is back in uh, Northern Illinois. I was just back there last weekend for uh, my mother's 70th birthday. Um, it gets mighty cold there as the wind blows across those cornfields uh, it, on <laughs> I remember that very, very well. I lived in Chicago for a number of years, too. Okay. Well, can, can you tell me, what was the population of Monkey Run while you were growing up there? <laughs> Monkey Run had about 100 people and just as many dogs. It was a... Uh, section of what once was the company town called Alaska, Missouri. And uh, the name of Monkey Run is, the technical name is Stillwell's first edition to Alaska. But somehow over time, people in the area dubbed it Monkey Run. A lot of the men, I think, in the, who lived there in the early years worked in the quarry as powder monkeys. Uh, they were the teams of blasters. My father was one of them much later, of course. But I'm pretty sure that's how the name was derived. But it was a small village, still is. It's still there. It's been flooded out so many times, and number of houses have been reduced. But there's still a number of people down there trying to keep the trying to keep the village alive. We've answered most of my first question that I was going to ask, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead with it anyways, and you can tell me uh, any anything that you haven't mentioned to date about it. But what's your own relationship with Mississippi, and then how did you uncover your family's history with the river? That's a good question. My my uh, my first memory, Jared, as far as I can tell, is a fragmented one. I was two and a half years old, and my mother was carrying me frantically in her arms as we ran down a dirt alley 
to the railroad tracks and up the river, up the cross ties to the mouth of the river where a drowning had just occurred. And my father was down there fishing at the time, which added to my mother's anxiety. We didn't know at that point who the victim was, but um, that's my very first memory. And I guess you'd say the river was my childhood playground as I grew up. I mean, I was a river. I was a river rat. Uh, I, I loved to be down there. I, it was a place, you know, where I could get away from the blues in my family's home. Uh, we had hard struggles like other people in that in that community did. And uh, it was a place to go sneak a cigarette. I learned to roll my own cigarettes at age six, if you can believe that. But it was always down at the river, and that's where I fished. I hung out. Um, I hunted with my uncles and cousins and other kinfolk on the islands in the Mississippi as a child. And I continued to do that. Uh, you know, I went out on the boats with the commercial fishermen and uh, set out the baskets and trot lines and bank lines, and I loved it. I mean... You know, when you pull in, pull up those nets and you see those big, beautiful buffalo fish and carp and big old flatheads, uh, it was a thrilling for a thrilling for a child to be a part of that. And I did that up until the time I moved away to go to college. So I, I cut my teeth on a river. It's It's been a major, it's had a major cultural influence on me, both as a historian and as a singer-songwriter. So I owe a lot to the Mississippi. And although my earlier scholarship didn't focus so much on the river, uh, in retirement, it, 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 it came back to me. And I became more interested in uh, trying to figure out the ancestry of my family because I found out in 1992 that my grandmother was born on, was, was lived on a shanty boat as a child. Along with that, till 1992, my mother used to talk about the people who lived on shanty boats in the area, and she didn't know it. And I was intrigued by that. How did that get lost in family memory? And so in 1992, when I made that discovery, I started, I, I developed a strong interest in some, some, at some point, coming back to that and trying to put my ancestors' heritage in a broader cultural context. Why did you choose to focus on the area near St. Louis? Well, I set out initially to to, uh, to frame my ancestors' uh, cultural heritage as shanty boat people in a broader context. And so I turned to St. Louis, which is only 100 miles south of Hannibal. I turned to St. Louis because St. Louis was the was the largest city on the Miss- on the Mississippi River at the time. And it, it attracted, uh, as I did research, I discovered it had dozens and dozens of shanty boat uh, settlements on the riverfront. And it also, I mean, say if you look at where the location of St. Louis, you've got the confluence of the, of the Missouri and the Mississippi River just north of there, 30 miles. The Illinois River, maybe about 45 miles north of there. And then below it, of course, you've got Cairo, uh, you know, where the Ohio empties into the river. And it seemed like that as I did the research, St. Louis was the happening place for 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 shanty boat settlements and roustabouts. And the roustabouts, of course, were worked the steamboat packets. And um, so I, that's how I, I did, landed on St. Louis. 
And initially I didn't plan to do a book. I was just really doing it for fun at the time. Uh, and as I got deeper and deeper into it, I realized I had a, I had a much larger study and St. Louis acts as a kind of a panoramic window into the entire Mississippi Valley. Uh, people from St. Paul to New Orleans passing through, stopping at St. Louis. It was a major, major stopping point for shanty boat people on the river. And so, and also it, to me, I always associated with up until the time I did the research, I associated shanty boat living with adaptive river living more to rural areas. And yet here was St. Louis, a major urban area. And so it raises all kinds of thorny issues in terms of relationship between municipal authorities, private landowners who still own some of the levy, uh, and shanty boat people who laid claim to their, they, they asserted their rights to be able to use that public levy. And so, uh, it ended up to be a fascinating study for me. I learned so much from it and, and was entertained by it as well as I did the research. So is there an actual definition for what constitutes a shanty boat? And then how did people come to own them? Shanty boat, the term shanty boat at the time in the late 1800s was a term that was used. Generally, it was a pejorative term used to, to denigrate shanty boat people. Um, according to one source I saw, some people preferred, ca- the shanty boat people themselves preferred cabin boats or houseboats. So that, that's how the term uh, sort of originated. I used it intentionally since it was used as a pejorative term to use it in defense of shanty boat people so that the term becomes less, it takes some of the sting out of it, in other words. Who found their way to the Mississippi in the period that you're describing here? One of the things that fascinated me, Jared, when I when I did the research was to find out just the diversity of people who lived in those settlements. I mean, first of all, primarily a lot of fishermen lived in 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 the shanty boats in these settlements, but there were also people from all kinds of professions. I found lawyers living there. I found medical students living in the communities, actors, uh, photographers, a number of merchants who owned books and did trades. You know, they did trading on the river and people who operated stores on the riverfront in North St. Louis in the largest shanty boat settlement was called Little Oklahoma. There was a, 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 a guy that had his ship captain's license. And he operated the saloon and grocery store there in a beer grove. And it was a hopping place. I mean, live music and everything, you know. And there was a there a part of the population did. Now, a lot of the people who lived on shanty boats followed the lifestyle up and down the river. They, they Let's say they lived in St. Paul and they're going to New Orleans for the winter. Or they lived in St. Louis and are going to New Orleans for the winter or Arkansas. And um, so, but there were others who did not own boats or they rented boats or lived in boats that were unseaworthy. And they were um, generally marginalized people because of economic circumstances and lived in a number of uh, either shanty boats, huts, dugouts in the hillside, 
wherever they could find a place to get, get some kind of shelter. Uh, so there's that part of the population as well. So you had sort of class division, you know, divisions within the shanty boat communities. Uh, the people who lived on the river who migrated, I think they were probably occupied, they were held in very high regard by others in the community because their knowledge of the river from a navigational standpoint and all, and all that. But there were, uh, you know, some people, boat builders lived there and they would build a few extra boats and rent them out to people. Some of them unconsciously because they wanted to build affordable housing for for the residents there. Refugees from the rat infested tenements in the city, just a few blocks away. The absence of landlords coming around harassing you for rent, that sort of thing. Many industrial workers who lived, who worked in uh, on the railroads also lived on the riverfront. That was there. And if you go to Pittsburgh area and on the Ohio, that there were there were a lot of hardworking working people who that, that was their home on the river. It was cheaper. You know, you could you could get your fuel supply if you by catching driftwood. You you they drank drank the water out of the Mississippi. Now, it, <laughs> it doesn't sound. It's like you saw my face just then. It was like, I, oh, I did. no. I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> I couldn't imagine it either. And sometimes, you know, the older generations on the shanty boats still drank it out of the river, but they started getting good water for their for their children. You know, there's some recognition that this might not be good for the young ones. But, they, you know, they developed an immunity system, I guess. It was just incredibly strong. I found some people lived there, I mean, up in their 80s and were, you know, still active in, uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, but then, of course, fish provided their food. How much time did you spend looking into sort of the, the way the names sprung up for these places? Because you mentioned Little Oklahoma, but the thought of people <laughs> going from Oklahoma back to St. Louis, that's not the typical way that we think about, you know, sort of the way that Americans migrated or you know, colonize the American West. They, they didn't go, we don't think of them as having gone that direction. So uh, did you right. spend any time looking into all the, all these different well, weird place names? Cause like that story behind like what monkey run may symbolize. Uh, well, I think, way. I think, yeah, I think chicken town, for example, in St. on the South, South end of, of St. Louis, I think it got his name because of the fact there were a lot of cock, there was a lot of cockfighting there, you know, uh, but I really don't know the answer to that. I, I do know that in the case of Little Oklahoma, the people themselves call, began to call themselves Little Oklahomans in the mid-1880s. And I think a lot of this had to do with that. In other words, they were squatters on the river on the riverfront down there. And they're comparing it to what's going on in Oklahoma at the time with the land rush and, and, and Oklahoma squatters, squatters going out there to try to claim land. And I, I, that's my best best guess as to how that name evolved. At first, I assumed that others gave them the name Little Oklahoma, but in the research, I found out that the people themselves there were calling themselves. You know, they had a great sense of humor too. Yeah, you had to to to, to live that kind of life. Uh, and uh, so, but that's to my best knowledge. You know, they they gave that name. Um, to themselves. So no, in others, other settlements, I, d- I don't know. Like Squatter's Town, 
you know, or Squatterville, uh, every ta- every city that had them had their own, you know, their variations of that name. So I'm going to pause and plug your book for a second here, because, uh, you, you know, if you order this book, and I recommend that you do order it, it's like it's going to show up and you're going to think, ah, this thing's, it looks pretty thin. It's like, it is so dense with the kind of stories that you've just described. <laughs> uh, I was like blown away by the amount that you packed in there because it's just story after story after story about all these little communities and all the characters who populate them. Um, is there a definition for a roustabout or is that sort of a more general term for river folk? I know you mentioned something earlier about it. It sounded very specific about what, what those folks job was. Yeah. Well, the term roustabout, you know, I mean, the term is used in like refer to circus workers too, you know, I think if I remember right, Elvis Presley's movie comes to find roustabout, but they travel with the circus, you know. Well, the roust, the, the term roustabout in the context of my book applies to those people who traveled on the boats. They lived on the boats. Let's say they, they contracted to, to, uh, on a steamer from St. Louis to New Orleans. They're going to load and unload at every steamboat landing in between those two port cities. Now, when they get to the port cities, there there are stevedores who are going to unload those ships. And when they get back to St. Louis in the home port, there are stevedores, groups of, of laborers that usually they go through a labor contractor and, and they come down and, and unload the ship. But the, the roustabouts live on the boat and they work I mean, sometimes I've seen, you know, captains saying how sometimes they work 36 hours without sleep if they had to. They did everything. They put the gang, they put the gangplank out. They loaded, you know, Arkansas Razorbacks, ill-tempered Razorbacks, stock, cattle. And they load them onto and unload them from, from the boats. And uh, if they needed to stop and take on wood for fuel, they'd go out, they'd go wooding, as they call it. Or, or coal boats, they'd load coal or unload coal from, from coal boats. And uh, it was a hard life. One, one roustabout that, I, that was interviewed in the late 30s called it the life of a dog because of the way the roustabouts were treated on the, by the mates, usually, who were their overseers. You know, a lot of the roustabouts had come out of slavery. And so this was their transition from slavery to freedom. And so the discipline on it, it very much resembled, uh, you know, plantation. There was whippings and beatings, uh, of course, racial insults constantly, cursing. And you get in some tight spots, you know, in some really areas that are heavily infested with mosquitoes. And there's a 95 to 100 degrees humidity and the same, same amount of humidity, tempers flare. And there, were a lot of, there, were, there was a lot of violence on those, on those packets. As a result of that, were roustabouts who who had their belly full of it, but that's the, the term was often misused by newspaper reporters at the time. The deckhands were generally white, for one thing, but the newspapers sometimes would call them roustabouts, sometimes deckhands, and so the public was often confused about who which who does what, you know, on 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 the boats. But roustabouts traveled on the steamboats. The stevedores lived in the city where they worked, and they usually had families. 
the rouseabouts tended to be young guys, um, you know, 18 to 20 in their early 20s, single usually. They, they of course, needed a place to live when they, when, the, when they weren't working the boats. And they usually lodged in saloons in the entertainment district in St. Louis, you know, for little or nothing. Sometimes the saloon owners had to carry them during hard times, let them stay there free, you know, in hopes they'd get paid back, you know, when the next steamboat came in. That's that, that's generally what, you know, rouseabouts, that was the role of the rouseabouts. Very, very difficult life. Music was a huge part of their, of the waterfront in general, is a form of entertainment. And the rouseabouts were known for it, singing and dancing. So you touch on this briefly. What was the ethnic and racial makeup of these communities like? You can find about every European nationality in the settlements. It depends on where you go. New Orleans, you're going to find, you know, you're going to find a lot of uh, of uh, black shantyboat uh, residents, mixed Cajun, come up the river Vicksburg. You're going to have a lot of black shantyboat settlers there on the riverfront. St. Louis was a mixture. You had, you know, newspapers often pointed out and complained about the interracial nature of the settlements. There was a lot of racial miscegenation that went on, you know, in those communities and uh, newspapers were angry about it. You know, there was a mixture. I, I found that some shanty, some roustabouts lived in the settlements. Most did not. But you tend to find the, the elderly roustabouts who could not find you know a way to support themselves in old age living in those shanty boat settlements so it's a, it's 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 an interesting mixture especially when you consider that this was all going on in the in the age in which racial segregation was being fastened onto the country there was a a black church in the dock street edition of little oklahoma it was racially integrated most of them were black who attended but, uh, you know, we're talking small churches, maybe 20-something maybe people go, maybe five or six of them might be white. And that church, that church was targeted. You know, they tried piling the city and, and a local lumber company tried piling garbage up around the, the outside of it, trying to force them out of there. So, you know, there's a lot of hostility toward people who lived in these settlements. What environmental challenges were those who lived on the river confronted with and how they deal with the, the flooding, the ice, and all the other challenges? I think the major fear of people who lived on the river, and I think this was true of you know, steamboat captains and steamboat owners. If I remember, 1909, right before the McKinley Bridge, which, which crosses the Mississippi River uh, there to Venice, Illinois, that bridge was just still under construction. And there were a lot of men up there working. A person who was lived across the river in a shanty boat community saw what was happening. He saw the, the, the ice break up and he tried to get out there to warn them. Fortunately, miraculously, they, I mean, they, the whole thing came tumbling down on the structure that they were working on. And they were able to somehow survive the, 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 the fall into the river and they were plucked out of the river and uh, it was really quite miraculous that no one was killed in that. But that's, I mean, it, that, that ice, when it breaks up, it, it can destroy a shanty boat. It can destroy a steamboat. It often did if it caught it just right. 
Um, so I think that was, uh, and then, it, you know, that was probably the most dangerous thing. But then, in a, you know, sometimes in the wintertime, like if you get an unusual year where you get heavy rains and then uh, warmer temps and then it refreezes again. And I mean, it, life, people trying to save their boats and everything and, and get their possessions and make it to higher ground. It was a real, real challenge from a from standpoint of survival. I ran across many people who had frozen feet trying to run across ice in an emergency, you know, situation, trying to get to shore. Um, but of course, the flooding was always always a risk. But I, I think probably shantyboat people fared better than most because they kind of knew how to cope with it. I mean, as long as they had their boats tied up to some secure location, they just float, you know, with the river as it came up. They float above it. And as long as they had that secure tie. And then when it came down, you know, sometimes they'd end up, lumber companies didn't like it because they'd end up, when a river dropped, it dropped them right in the middle of their lumber yard. And so they want they want them out fast. And, of course, from the standpoint of the people who lived in those boats, they, the, you know, it's expensive for one thing to get those boats, to get them back to the shoreline. So, I mean, it was a complicated life in, you know, in so many ways involving the natural elements. You, you, if you were going to go south for the winter and you live someplace north, you want to get an early start. If the river starts freezing on you, you're in trouble. And uh, as you know from reading the book, I mean, there were many cases where people found themselves in very, very dangerous spots and still managed to survive them. I mean, using poles to keep ice flows away from the boat and all that until it gradually, as they go south of the river, it gets a little warmer and then finally it melts. And so there are plenty of those stories out there on the river. I, you know, I grew up in, you know, Mark Twain country and my folks, both my father and my mother were wonderful storytellers. And so, so um, that's what I tried to do in this book is let these people whose voices have not been heard before in history, let them come on stage and make their appearance and say their lines and do what they have to do and then step off. And then here's another one that's coming on. And my challenge was to put these stories together in a narrative framework and an analytical framework that, you know, that, that was the, that, I think that for me was the, was the big challenge, but I, I love storytelling and, and these people were wonderful storytellers. Well, perfect transition. I think this will be the last question that we have time for, but what, what sort of entertainment and economy evolved to support the communities along the river? And for those of you who, like, if you've got the book at home, the chapter, The American Fondness for Humbug, like, that's going to be where this answer is derived from. It's probably my favorite chapter, but Greg, go ahead. Well, first of all, music was central to, to, the, to these settlements. I mean, the, every settlement had, a, had any number of, of good musicians fiddle players, guitar, you name it. And, of course, the roustabouts were known for their singing and uh, their influence on ragtime music and uh, as well as blues and, and later riverboat jazz. Shell diggers, you know, one of the groups of people you often find on a river. I mean, almost everybody in those camps played a fiddle. And so you had these fiddle stomps going on for entertainment. And people would throw a party. I mean, people would, people would dance on top of shanty boats. You know, someone would, someone in the community would host a party and invite everybody, and you might get 30, 35 people come in there. And, of course, there's no room for everybody to dance in the boat. 
but people would get on top of the boats and it'd just be, you know, that's how, that's how people entertain themselves. Uh, and along the course, along the levee, you have other, you know, people who are not living on in the shanty boats, but there, there, there are shops and, and taverns, honky tonks all along the levee there uh, that provided uh, entertainment. It was a very lively place. I came across this ragger culture that fascinated me, a, a dancing craze, a cultural fad, if you will. And the headquarters seemed to be Little Oklahoma, the the, the tavern and the, and the grocery store beer garden owned by Louis Sight. And because his his bartender there was uh, who lived there and lodged lodged it there, he was the regarded as the king of the raggers. Anyway, I was, it was a fascinating look at their culture. I mean, the whole way they dressed, there was a gang swagger about them. They, these weren't the most poor people because they had to have money to dress like that. You know, they were they were working class, mainly from, an, it, I think it originated in North St. Louis, but uh, a segment of the working class that had a little money that they could, they could, they could buy these kind of clothes and, uh, and go to these big ragger balls and everything and dance contests and everything. And how, it just tickled me when I ran across that, that the headquarters was right there in Little Oklahoma. It was a hangout place on Sundays, especially. Raggers came in there from all over the city. And before you know it, people, wealthy people were hiring these raggers to come into their private homes and put, and put on shows, dance contests and all that. Political parties were starting to invite them to the to their to their doings, you know, trying to gain political support. So it's I think, you know, it's just a fascinating look at life. It's I think what I've done here is in this book is provide a, a, a you know a cultural history of the Mississippi River basin. It's not just St. Louis. It's it's the entire Mississippi no, it was great, Greg. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time that we, or that's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Greg Andrews. Greg, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? You can find me online. I have a WordPress blog called lostriverstories.com. All one word, lostriverstories.com. You can find me on the Greg Andrews Facebook. And so, yeah, that's, that's probably the best, the best way to get in, to get in touch with me. My next project, I'm very far along on on the next project. It's, I think it's going to be called Tales from Point Breeze, which is the St. Louis Workhouse. Tales from the Workhouse, which overlooked the Mississippi River down near the governor, the, the U.S. Arsenal on the south side of St. Louis. And I'm looking at stories from people who were sent to the workhouse for a number of reasons. And it's uh, it's a fascinating. I found some fascinating stories already. So that's that's what I'm doing. It's a history of the St. Louis Workhouse. Well, that sounds great, Greg. I, I look forward to talking with you about it uh, once you publish that. But thank you again for joining us. To listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. I want to fill the bottle down to where I